So this is Scott Morey uh, with GPG Advisors. This is an RE Insight Series podcast. I'm fortunate today to have Bob Coteau. Bob is the CEO of Altus Group, which is a leading provider of independent advisory services, software, data solutions to the global commercial real estate industry. So there's a lot in there, which we're going to talk about uh, in a little bit. And for those that don't know, they probably do because the sound quality is going to be amazingly better on this podcast than the previous ones. Bob and I are in person in his office in New York. So thanks for joining. Great to be here, Scott. And it's nice to be in person. It's real. <laughs> it is real, yeah. I can't hide. What you don't know is normally I'm in a booth. I literally am in like one of those, you know, single person booths. I have stuff taped up on the walls and I'm sweating and I'm on the phone. That's funny. I can't hide now. So anyway, thanks again. So as I have in past podcast I want to go back to early in your life actually and yep. around your family life and um, I know or believe you grew up in Montreal that there I, I've seen and read some fascinating stories about I know you've got three other brothers and a younger sister and the four boys were first under the age of five but your mother had to be your mother had to be a saint actually in some ways but I'd love for you to talk about the early kind of family life and and what that was like. And I know your dad was in the aerospace industry and NASA is going to come up in a couple of ways as part of this discussion later oh, on. But, but could you share kind of that, you know, what it was like growing up and, and how that influenced you? Well, second, second of four brothers in, um, in a, grew up in an environment that was incredibly uh, competitive. We were all you know, involved in sports and my dad particularly was a pretty good athlete, so in some respects he was like the fifth brother. Um, and and growing up um, at that time was just flat out fun, right? Lots of sports, school was a little bit on the side, um, and uh, really it changes, you know, how you think about, um, you know, family and brothers. My mother, um, we had two homes. My dad traveled a lot, as you as you said. It was when dad was home that was pretty buttoned down home. Mm -hmm. When dad was away, it was pretty uh, pretty free reeling and uh, and just you know much more um, uh, a family or a home that uh, you know was really uh, about the the four boys just running around doing their thing. So um, I didn't know what kind of sports was your father into actually. So my, my dad played professional hockey in the U.S. Ah, and but he, no any way. sport he played, he was pretty good at. And uh, hmm. so um, that's how we actually got into the uh, aerospace industry. Back then, uh, if you were a good athlete in Montreal, they had a commercial uh, league uh, that was almost semi-pro, and so they get these great hockey players to come and work for a company, and um, and they paid them to play hockey and go to school. Yeah. And what team did he play on? He played on a bunch of teams, but uh, the one that he talked about the most was the Atlantic City Seagulls. Okay. So he had fun with that. <laughs> so great pictures of him in you know, pretty cool suits and neat cars back then. Yeah, now your main sport's skiing, and you're pretty yeah. committed to it. And, yeah. and earlier in your life, we're going to get later on, actually, from right when you went into university and some other things, you made comments around that. But... Skiing and hockey are two different things. Did your dad was your dad a skier? No, no, no. Was that was your way of branching out then, or what was it? I don't know. I think I think it's a little bit of um, uh, you know what your passion is, and yeah. I played hockey as a uh, when I was young, uh, but my older brother got into skiing, and he brought me out 
when I was a young teenage a teenager a couple of times and I just fell in love with it. It was amazing and uh, it became my passion. Uh, but, you know, fast forward, I'm still playing hockey yeah. years later. So, um, uh, but skiing became really something I just loved. So you were the second oldest, so you two younger brothers. How much younger was your sister when she was born? So she was born about six years after my youngest brother. Okay. So, you know, she uh, uh, she became the second family, caused the second family to have been very close to my parents. Yeah. Um, and when you're the second in a group of four, you're, uh, you're kind of lost in the pack. And when a, um, a uh, you know, this... Uh, our sister came along it was like amazing for my parents I was like mm. I think that's why they kept going and having all these boys they were looking for that girl to right. come along so it <laughs> took a little longer than they thought I can't imagine actually if you were coming to date your sister it had to be quite daunting actually right with the four boys and your dad and I don't know are you I think my youngest brother played that role because yeah. he was the closest to her they're still really really close and uh, and, and um, you know we you know, because you're, everyone was so busy that, you know, we we probably left that to him more than anybody else. So years later, I don't know what period of time, I know your dad moved actually to California. He was there for 10 years yeah. for NASA, the Challenger, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah, right. That was for Bombardier, not NASA. Okay. Uh, they're the ones who built the Challenger jet. It's ah, the executive jet. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, interesting. It is interesting. So what period of your life, because you spent a year there, I think, or I don't know if it was more than a year, but did you spend a year in California? No, I never actually moved with them, actually. Okay. After they moved to California, um, I actually moved out to, uh, I finished a year of college um, uh, in uh, Montreal, uh, and then moved out to um, Banff, Alberta, and you were where I was skiing, skiing, and and skiing and working, skiing, yeah. but a lot less working than skiing. And, um, and did that for a, a few years and then went back to university. Okay. And what was your, just curious, your parents' reaction? You, you well, know. I think they were, they were happy to, um, you know, that uh, I, I had made that decision, but they thought it was kind of a one-year thing and back to university. And when yeah. it turned into kind of two and a half, I think they were uh, a little bit anxious about it. But, look, they, you know, they were... You know, they were happy that I was following my own path, and great. you know, I'd always told them that you know, at the right time, I'll I'll definitely go back to school. And then I know you had odd jobs, and they were night jobs, which allowed you to ski. And I'm a different version of you in some ways because my main sport's surfing. Right. Actually, and I still, strangely, Lake Michigan, I go, I travel and go, and I I've done a variety of things, and I think it was my passion in many ways. But you had night jobs. I know one of them was. Uh, it was in a previous interview you had done and talking about doing laundry and other things like that yeah. and just like it's doing whatever you got to do right to survive and make some cash yeah i mean you know we worked at the band strings hotel which was just a very, it's like if you haven't been there you have to go it's one of the iconic hotels in north america it's an amazing setting and we would take jobs as night cleaners cleaning the kitchen or getting the laundry room ready and you know it was really all about the skiing at that point and you know you'd We'd be, we'd be skiing over a hundred times in the year, so you'd right. you'd just definitely try and get out there five six days a week, and so anything to, anything for skiing. But it was also a lot of fun because you meet people from all over the world, and uh, you know it's just such an amazing setting in the rocky summer and winter. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Concordia University was where you went, I think, yeah. right? You were mar- uh, majoring in marketing, is that correct yeah. as well? Right. And then summer still, I think you were going west, at least sometimes doing yeah. construction work, is that? Yeah, what, the, what we would do is um, uh, finish our last exam, uh, get together with everybody, and at 2 in the morning we'd jump in a car and drive out west. It seems so crazy now. Yeah. Four people in a car, and... Um, and we'd end up skiing for two or three weeks, and one of us would run up into northern Alberta or into Edmonton or Calgary and find pipeline jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and when you work pipeline, you actually just go on for, you know, six, eight weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. You might get an afternoon off on a Sunday, and you'd make enough money in six or eight weeks to be able to pay for school that next year because it was oh, just, wow. you know seven days of work a week and lots of hours and all that and our drill was um, when the pipeline jobs so skiing at the beginning of the summer and then we would drive down to California at the end of the summer and go surfing for two or three weeks and but I was never a good surfer surfer is a lot harder than skiing I'm not a good skier so. and where in California would you go we go to places like San Onofre okay and, yeah uh, oh that's funny know, yeah, old man's so, so south of LA type yeah. of thing you know just kind of like sleep in the car or yeah. find a campsite and that so uh, but it was awesome I mean it was just like you know part of the fun yeah and we'd go down and see my parents as well who were just outside of LA okay and then how'd you pick marketing as a degree what was the I don't I, like it it was kind of um, you don't you don't pick it in first year you pick it in second or third year and it became pretty you know obvious that that was the stuff that I was most interested in, you know, it was the ability to, you know, think about more macro activities in, inside a business. And, you know, I love the case study part of it. And so it just appealed to me in that way. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, obviously you had to take, you know, all the courses, finance and accounting and statistics, and they were fine. But the thing that I got the most charge out of was marketing. The... Um I think as part of that, you said this previously actually, is about you, uh, obviously IT was new then, there weren't many universities that had yeah. degrees in it, and it was this sort of wild card, and you're still doing actually, I think about when I came out in 88, uh, learning COBOL, was post-punch cards, not that many years, right? right? So, you start taking some IT classes, you graduate, you go to Cal, you're in Calgary, you go to Calgary, yeah. and I think you start with HP in a yeah. interpretation program. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, I say early days of HP, but it wasn't, but it was kind of the heydays of HP, yeah. right? I mean, and you were there for a number of years, so can you share kind of what you did then and what that was like? Well, it's funny how you you think back and people say that you end up getting three or four breaks, and the reason I got um, uh, picked to go into this internship program at Hewlett-Packard is that the hiring manager in Canada was a skier. Mm-hmm. So instead of asking me a hundred questions about what do I know about technology, mm-hmm. which was not a lot, um, uh, I got asked a lot of questions. We hit it off right away. This is a guy that you know was really intrigued on me being a big skier and, mm-hmm. and the like. And then the flip, you get accepted, you end up as part of our internship in the first year, you spend a lot of time in combination of California. They also had a big, um, it worked out pretty well actually, they had a big uh, disk memory division in Idaho mm-hmm. and so you'd go to those places for two or three weeks at a time and you see the connection back to skiing yeah. in places like Idaho it was amazing um, and so I was really really lucky 
But what, what happened was, did pretty well at school, pretty good athlete, and then you throw yourself in an environment where, honestly, like everyone knew more about technology. I mean, I was by far uh, the least ready to start a career in technology, and so that was a big break too because, you know, you, you definitely learn about uh, learning, about the questions you can ask, how to not look silly about asking questions once and really doing it in a way where you take the knowledge with you rather than being a burden to people around you. And so uh, that was a great opportunity at Hewlett Packard. And, and I, um, you know, ended up, you know, learning how to speak in front of people. Uh, you ended up, I remember coming back, being there six weeks at Hewlett Packard and the guys in the office in Calgary said, look, we've got 300 customers coming in. And we decided that you're going to be doing one of the speeches. I'm like, God, I've never spoken to more than 20 people. Right. I was terrible, but I said I'm going to learn from it, yeah. and and I got you know better at doing that by just trying. And 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 so Hewlett Packard was amazing in so many ways. They moved me back to Toronto. I got married to a woman from Toronto, and uh, you know that became our home. So it, it worked out really well. It was a really uh, um, great time. Uh, where you learned about selling and marketing and technology. I mean, back then, the kind of training that they would give you was incredible. Same thing as it was when I was at um, Anderson, but it was also the start of, um, and in your case would be an example, and other places I've seen where I was, where they were taking non-IT people and recognizing the value of them. And then, you know, I think about my days at Anderson when I started, they had history majors and engineering. I was a business admin. I could have been more of a generalist right? right. at the end of the day. And uh, I guess same thing with you as with me. A lot of it's just luck and timing. Sure. Going back, like who would have thought, right? And then I look at real estate technology, which I'd argue is an oxymoron for years, right? And making a career of that. So we'll, we'll get there. How many years were you there? Because I know you, you went from there to Xerox in 93. Yeah, so I, I, I actually went to Xerox for, um, which was really a, a great uh, move because um, because I had been um, at HP uh, going to Xerox, I was the technology guy. So you go from okay. being you go from being you know kind of like somebody that maybe doesn't hit the standard at HP to being the smartest guy in the room around technology. <laughs> It worked. It worked actually pretty well, and I loved it because back then you, you might even remember this. Um, you know, there was a, a product called Documentum that was in the market. Yeah, it was and, huge. And so I was yeah. uh, in Xerox working. My The guys I worked with were just down the hill from Park. Yeah. And the idea was at Xerox, what we would do is be the division that took these software or data technologies out of Park and commercialize them. Okay. And so I was involved in Documentum even before it was spun out as a as a company, and uh, worked a lot with um, a bunch of other workflow technologies and data technology. But the fun part of Xerox, why it ended up being a pretty good place for me to work, is that they felt that for me to be considered one of their high potential global executives, I had to learn about copiers. I didn't totally agree with them at the time. But through that, uh, it was one of the most amazing sales and marketing companies in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so you end up getting, you know, more experience. And so I ended up 
working in, it was probably the first place where I worked in an industry job uh, where uh, not only did I run a pretty big region at, at Xerox, at one point when they moved to an industry model, uh, I ran financial services for them. Oh, wow. And uh, that was a great experience and I loved it because what happens in that environment is you go from a product orientation, HP, Xerox in its core, to an industry orientation or a customer orientation and and you know particularly coming from a strong product company learned a lot about how you reposition a company and teams and value propositions and had a lot of fun with it and how long were you there for since Xerox about 10 years okay so 2000 I think right yeah 2000 that's right is that right yeah. And then what made you leave, actually? And then you went to, you had a brief gap, I think. But I, I, think, I think I know what you did in that gap and then ended up at EDS. But what, yeah. what made you leave? Well, a, f a few things. Um, uh, we, um, there's a few of us that we saw um, that the company had to change. And, you know, you're at the point in your career where you're pretty strong about that. And there was a, a lot of growing... Um, uh, differences among the executive team and at that point they had rebounded from this technology orientation this technology model and a few of us left at that point Bill McDermott is now the CEO right. of SAP was also one of the guys at uh, Xerox that left around that time but for me the big driver because I love Xerox I thought it was a great company was I wanted to do a startup and uh, I ended up in a uh, security uh, early stage, yeah, an early stage uh, technology company that um, was amazing, like 100 employees mm -hmm. um, uh, doing work. We actually sold to NASA. Well, that's why I saw the connection. Yeah. It was yeah. fascinating. I was wondering if there was any, yeah, did you cross paths with someone that your father knew? No, no, because my dad, the challenger totally is not that. Separate, yeah. It's a different challenger, right? Yeah. And uh, I missed it, that. It was, his was an executive <laughs> chat. Well, we sold the security environment. We actually pivoted into banks. Uh, we had a really kind of fun run with that. And, you know, you come to realize, you know, through that, through those experiences, what you enjoy doing and, right. and running a hundred person, you know, startup is a high uh, tightrope uh, uh, act of the highest order because you can't make any mistakes. You need mm -hmm. to drive the revenue to pay the bills. Yeah, you are making product decisions every day that are critical. You can't get trapped by one big customer. Right. You're trying to pivot into financial services before you're ready. Right. And so coming from that, when you go to SAP later on, when people complain, oh my gosh, the products aren't, you know, far enough down the road, you're right. like, holy cow. Like, you, you know, have no we, idea. We were, <laughs> we, were, we were selling you know futures almost every day yeah. like almost every startup does right, right. and you had a great and, customer uh, list though yeah yeah it was, exactly. yeah it was Honestly. amazing and and frankly the technology we ended up selling the company but uh, the technology was such that um it was more of a modeling software where you could apply it to different industries and you know the smart companies picked it up without making it into a full application right. and so yeah it was a good it's a good run, and then you go to SAP and. Well, what was the EDS though? Because you were at EDS for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good point. Yeah. Uh, so I pivoted into EDS, um, and what I was looking to do at that point was to position myself in Toronto, but do a global job. And EDS, the okay. head of um, uh, 
global uh, applications, uh, and I met uh, through a mutual friend, um, and he basically created a job for me. Okay. So I ran all of our um, application services business in Canada. I was involved in some of the big projects that um, uh, they were working on on a global basis. It was kind of a made-up role, and it, it was a lot of fun. The other interesting thing I think about EDS and you gain all these experiences as you go along is you're working on massive deals. Like, you know, I ended up winning a, um, a government deal that was literally 10 years, you know, $6 billion, mm-hmm. you know, complete business transformation, uh, of which a lot of that transfer- transformation is with public service employees, yeah. many of which were unionized. I mean, these are, um, you know, like, and you're competing against your alumni at Accenture. Uh, I always tell that story is that, you know, you really learn how to sell, install, manage, change, transform. EDS at that time was a giant Mm -hmm. in the IT industry, right? And um, what happened was that, uh, you know, in a very short period of time, because it was only there a couple of years, and then I got recruited by Bill McDermott, the guy that I work with at Xerox, to go to SAP, but it was it was like absolutely fascinating. Like what that mm-hmm. company, the kind of stuff we would bid on was incredible. Was there headquarters still at that point in Northern Dallas? Yeah. Because I remember I did work, as you know, coming to today in some ways, that the Ross Pro families in the real estate business with yeah. Hillwood and Alliance and his old office actually on Merritt Drive yeah. used to look down at the old EDS headquarters. Which right. Is so funny, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the EDS headquarters was just out of this massive it's crazy built like fort knox right because you had all these there was no way it was going to crash into that thing get in there it's amazing i mean it's like um look when you start your career and you're thinking about being a global executive and working on big projects you know it doesn't get much better than eds and then sap where you know i mean the fortune uh 500 runs uh their businesses on sap right? right and so it was really, and to be in global jobs for those two companies, um, you know, it, you know, it, it's a cl- classic case of you know starting to achieve what you hope for in your career. When I when I uh, had a chance to work in those companies, for sure. Well, you'd say for a lot of people, their careers would be defined by one of those moments. True, right? It's, yeah. it's not common for someone to find themselves in that spot yeah. more than once. True, right? Yeah. In many cases. Um, yeah, but I say it's a testament to, to your capabilities and, and what you've done. So. Well, thank you. But, you know, it's um, it's the old case of be careful what you ask for because yeah. in both those jobs, and particularly at SAP, you end up on a plane traveling around the world. It's the lure of the global executive. It sounds exciting, <laughs> but you spend a lot of time away from home. And uh, But I was uh, honestly, the the, uh, the opportunities that I, that I got at, at both those companies and even at Xerox were incredible like and and I've always I've always pursued the experience like in my in my life that's been that's been the hallmark is you're always looking to challenge yourself against a, a new set of experiences and I definitely got them in those companies even Texar for that matter yeah different experience so SAP 2004 eight-year run yeah which is a good run right yeah. left uh, and then really came right into Altus not that long after, right? Yeah. I think within a year, less than yeah. a year, yeah. pretty much you came in here. So yeah. it's interesting coming back is that, you know, real estate and technology is such a funny space, right? And we can talk about, which we will, all this capital and a huge amount of press. 
uh, about that in prop tech, but you know, I could go back 18 years and tell the same story. I think the cycle is different in many ways, but it's always been kind of an underserved market. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you go back to one of your products, and that's why I think a lot of people don't realize the diversity of the Altus group. And, and I mentioned this when we were together in Vegas, actually, as I was kind of researching for that panel. Yeah. Is uh, you're a giant company at the end of the day. I mean, you're just shy in 2017. I think it was 470 million revenue or yeah. something like that. You got low double digits, 10% average compounding growth since you've been here. Yeah. is following pretty closely. You got some yeah. variations in it for different reasons, whether it's currency, your sure. acquisitions, and kind of other things. But um, but Argus has been a part of that all the way through. Yeah. Right. And you go back when I came into the space in '89. You're kind of on. It's one of the foundational things, and and by far has got to be one of the greatest, not great, well, greatest is probably or most widely used application globally of, of anyone, right? And people have come and gone, and and you guys have been the steady player all the way through. And then off that platform, which I think predates you, is there was efforts to further expand the platform, both related to. Uh, the software offering, right? Sure. And and then even more so has happened, I would say, in your range, certainly relative to the services and the analytics piece, which is where we are today. Right? Yeah. So I'd love to hear kind of the last, you know, five years. What was it like coming in here? You hadn't really been in real estate. And then I go back to your pipeline construction days many years ago, but it's a different exercise. I don't think I draw on that experience. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't either. I used to <laughs> dig ditches in, in summers, actually, with guys that were convicts doing landscape. I didn't know they were convicts, so I offered to give them a ride home, and they went to a halfway house. But, but anyway, um, that's funny. It is funny, right? It's like I think I work with those guys too. The amount of, yeah, they're fascinating guys. Just don't yeah. go out drinking with them too much. But you know, coming into Altus versus today, I just love to hear your perspective. What it was like when you first came in, and yeah. and what your thoughts are, and kind of you know how that's advanced over the last five years. Well, I, I think um, first of all, the the attraction. Uh, for this role in this industry is just what you described. Like, there's an awakening going on around innovation and technology uh, in this industry that was, you know, fairly easy to spot was going to happen. And um, and so when I first came in into uh, the industry, the and the company, the attraction was that I love this industry thing. As I told you before, just sorting it out. Um, uh, and really thinking about what the different requirements are across the spectrum of the industry for the different types of companies that serve the industry and also inside a company, what are the different ways that people are going to use software and data. And that was, that was the, um, you know, the original orientation. And, and from the get-go, um, I had it in my mind that one of the opportunities was to combine data and software. You know, if the more you can actually either use software to present the data or by data collection in whatever norm you can to fuel the software, that's how you're going to create value. And so we position ourselves as an information services company rather than a software, a data, or a services company. All three are important. And um, uh, what we've been able to uh, accomplish over that time is to actually migrate Argus Enterprise from a single asset, more uh, focused on valuation capability to really becoming an investment and asset management platform for portfolio modeling, sensitivity analysis, thinking about 
you know, risk and um, uh, thinking about structures of investment. And the hard part of it is doing that on a global basis. And so the three axes that we've been working on is, you know, the applications, you know, uh, extending the value of Argus, the globalization, doing that broadly in all markets. And now we're a standard in Canada, the US and the UK and well on our way to establishing standards in Asia. We've done um, more agreements with companies where they're deploying Argus on a global basis. And then the third leg of the stool is modernization. And what we've been doing uh, over the last year is really investing in the cloud, Uh, having a data management infrastructure, thinking about workflow in the cloud, and we'll be coming up with our first cloud-based applications um, you know, at the end of this year. First one being something called Argus Acquire, yeah. which is going to be focused on taking a pipeline of opportunities and seeing their impact on your current portfolio. Um, and right beside that, we also just acquired a company called Talliance, mm-hmm. which, inclu- which increases the ability to give visibility to investor performance, the interrelationship between debt and equity and yeah. the like. So, so that's the strategy we're on. We're, yeah. we're going global and you know, we're, um, we're bringing along things like our valuation management solutions on a global basis. And, you know, a big part of our growth is Europe and Asia now. Yeah. Well, in Europe, I go back years ago to the acquisition of Circle on the valuation side. And yeah. certainly the UK, in many cases, I would say, are dominant, at least on the individual, going back, because that's where those products were on, kind of the individual asset base. Yeah. And now, of course, and not just currently, but for a while, about enterprise-level solutions. Right. Yeah. So it is about asset management, investment management, uh, portfolio level, whether I'm an investor or an operator that owns assets or something else. Um, but it's interesting too because a lot of the solutions you'd argue kind of always difference between balance sheet and income statements, right? And a lot of the offerings are um, balance sheet related. It's all good, right? And you you tell a story. You've told it before, and I think you told it. I was listening to your shareholder meeting, right? Your most recent yeah. one. And, um, about things being forward-looking because it comes very historical-looking, and this is about today and and forward-looking and be able to navigate that world, which I think is consistent with the whole offering. Yeah. When I look on the services side, you know, property tax, which is a great offering, actually, is one of your higher growth areas. Incredible growth, right? It's unbelievable the, yeah. the level that's growing, and certainly in the last quarter or in Q1 that was true. But I'd argue that's very PL focused, right? on expense focus and about cost reduction and so it's sort of there's a question there about you know how far does the does the offering go and and do you focus on other aspects of the cost side besides property tax you're dominant you had the acquisition you came to cbs but you're already a great market share i mean you take here i think you're dominant actually in the u.s um were there other kind of angles like that besides the balance sheet and income statement that you could see you would do more services or offerings? Yeah, well, f- first of all, property. Th- so in the center, we're trying to support portfolio managers, asset managers, investment managers, and give them the data to look at their performance, you know, over time on a global basis. Yeah. Right beside that, there's two other axes. One's, one is expense. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, property tax is the largest non-capital expense. And so our proxy is that um, through property tax, it becomes a way of thinking about controlling expenses. And so we're building 
software and data around property tax to give visibility to that. And a simple example <clears throat> of you know getting value out of property tax is to forecast an acquisition. Yeah. Like people don't do that now. They just yeah. put a plug in. Mm -hmm. And so we think by you know becoming a dot you know a very strong player in property tax, we're gonna give more value to our existing clients. And similarly there's other areas where we can provide benchmarking or visibility into savings, energy. Well, I think uh, energy comes to the media demand. It's a really good one. Yeah. We're working with a company called Waypoint that does benchmarking. We've actually invested in them. Yeah. And so we, we think that by actually building competencies, software, data, and services competencies around portfolios like property tax, it opens up the door to create more value. And then on the other side, we we bought a company in Australia and we have a product called Developer where we give visibility on, you know, cost of capital, the uh, pro forma around investment, what could that look like on an acquisition. And more and more we see that as another dimension that people are going to look at when they start thinking about going into these very difficult markets to acquire assets. So how right. can you reposition it? And so, so we when are really looking at... Honest buildings investment would be consistent. Right. And we're talking honest buildings about how do we right. collect data together to, you know, really increase the value of both our offerings and their offerings. So we love that. Um, we love looking at the categories. We love the idea of innovating around what's important to our customers. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the other uh, part of it is also in the investment side, and, and you would agree with this because it's what you're offering, is how to make better decisions, right? So if you're placing money, whatever that may be, if i got to reposition, develop it, or something else. And more and more people are starting to look at non-financial metrics to understand performance. Sure. So a great bad example, <laughs> when I was at General Growth uh, not that long ago, the analysts you know, grabbed onto satellite data for malls and about looking at parking structures. Now, and they beat every public read with that. And I was, you know, sadly watched, I didn't say sadly watched, it was ridiculous. And even Citibank was guilty of it. And I say guilty of it because that data set was taking snapshots twice a year and it was different times a day and it, it had no statistical or you know basis effectively for the recommendations. Having said that though, people are taking credit card data, they're taking <coughs> geolocation data, which GPS or other stuff, and trying to find ways to incorporate that, regardless of asset class actually. There's an argument of how you can use those data sets to understand the financial or the, not the financial, to understand the performance of that asset today and going forward. You see yourself going down that path, whether it's Demographic information, consumer information, movement, geolocation. Like on logistics, I could argue I could be tracking trucks and understanding the movement of the trucks and the corridors of that effectively to identify locations for properties. Do you think you'll go down there? Uh, you know, depending on your time horizon, uh, yeah. you can you can absolutely imagine um, that um, we could go down that road, and I believe in it. And the way we may do it is in partnership with others where we bring that data and co-mingle it with your current portfolio as an example, right? right? But I, I believe in it. It's it's funny, we do this survey um, of the uh, C-level executives, over 300 C-level executives globally, and the, one of the latest ones we did is on how they view new innovations, new technologies, you know, whether it's big data, AI, machine learning, autonomous vehicles, right. and their impact on the business. And 9% and of the respondents said autonomous vehicles uh, could have an impact on real estate. 
And the first reaction was, okay, well, maybe that, you know, maybe, maybe it's something that could happen in the future. My read on it is those are the people that are going to actually be thought leaders in how real estate is going to be managed, right? And so, so more and more we're seeing breakout companies using things like big data, which you're describing, yeah, yeah. and thinking about how autonomous vehicles and what kind of amenities people want and what's a sweet mix and what are the things that are going to create value in, in a, you know, a very tight market like New York, Toronto right. or others, you have to innovate around that. You have to be thinking differently. You have to be thinking about getting the most out of your assets on revenue and expense. Yeah. And so, uh, for sure, uh, will we be part of that? We already are investing in companies that are innovating around these types of things, and we'll continue to do that and be partners with them. Now, it's unfair. I should be careful I'm asking because you're public, and you can't, you, can't, you can't say too much in the scheme of things. But on the parking side, it's interesting. One is Green Street, I'm sure you're aware of, right, um, has published some interesting reports. Where they think it's accretive because they think actually parking lots will become less utilized, and... You can utilize that space, and of course, it has a has overall value relative to the land. Deloitte came out with a report, which I actually agree with, only because I've got four kids and a couple dogs and a bunch of other people around me. Is today? Well, now my kids are older, three of them at least. Is you know, you could I could put all four kids in different cars. I could stick a dog in the car. I could stick you know everyone in different directions. And and actually, Deloitte's arguing in a white paper, congestion goes up versus goes down. But anyway, who knows? Two couple more questions, and and, sure. and we're we're running long. One is on just briefly about blockchain because I have this belief, and and not Yardy does not agree. I think with my view, but I think Patrick does that blockchain is going to completely redo accounting for those guys. I, I think at the end of the day, the idea of dual simultaneous ledgers, real time, it just happens, right? And and you're in a really good position, I think, sitting on top relative to overseeing and reporting on and developing transparency around those assets. Yeah. Then in some ways you would want to either be the, the kernel of that blockchain relative to the integration of those solutions initially, which then go away, or at least be sitting in a position to get that data, but it has to be on your radar, I'm guessing. Is that, is yeah. that true? Look, okay, I, I think um, a lot of these uh, technologies um, like blockchain uh, over time become uh, building blocks rather than the center of gravity. Right. and. And for sure, the things that will drive uh, blockchain is the search for liquidity, the ability to actually do uh, commerce in a different way, the supporting capabilities of blockchain to imagine different business models. And so, yeah, we're, we're definitely believing that there's opportunities in that. The real opportunity for us around that is to be a purveyor of high-value governments oriented data in a way where you can support liquidity all the way from you know in the simple phase daily pricing uh, all the way through to the underlying value of assets so there's so many different business models like the the playbook for us right now is to you know turn a global valuation platform into a global data management platform that's where we're going that's the orientation of our cloud strategy and from that you can then serve up, you know, everything from individual company reporting to investor reporting to benchmarking to indexes, uh, of which all of those are going to be supported by blockchain at some level.
Yeah, I think that's fair. Two, two more questions. There's a theme you may not recognize in your past interviews when you take your time at HP and Xerox and SAP and now about um, being customer-oriented. And, and you have a previous interview test sort of about lessons learned. But also you've talked about the challenges of being public and having benchmarks you have to make and, and growth rates you have to ideally hit, right, because you want to meet guidance and balancing that with being customer-oriented and customer-focused, right? Yeah. And, and, you, and sadly, you find some companies that are more fo focused on the short-term and they, they sacrifice those relationships as a result. I'd just love to get your perspective on, on that balance and walking that line yeah. as a public company and trying to service and provide um, kind of a trusted advisory in many ways to your, to your client base. Well, I, I think, you know, as a, as a leader, as a general manager, if you're preoccupied with the quarter, you're going to fail. Um, you know, the the key for um, whether you're an individual contributor managing a territory or you're building product as a product manager, um, if you're not thinking about it in the construct of really getting um, a portfolio of activity going on that serves the local opportunity, the immediate opportunity, but also really gives you a a uh, opportunity to to create new value mm -hmm. through through um, you know different relationships, different functionality. Then you're going to lose any any time that you spend eighty percent of your time working on problems inside the quarter is a recipe for failure. And I've, I've always believed that. Um, <clears throat> and as a company, as a public company CEO, look, we're we're investing big time. I mean, I could very quickly create you know much. A more immediate EBITDA by not implementing a global system to support our capability yeah. to think about global data management to build products for the future of which these are the things that our customers are asking for and so you know I think we're something like 21 quarters of growth mm -hmm. and we've implemented or built a company that's built to last in terms of our infrastructure we're global we have open offices in all major markets and we're building, you know, a cloud platform for the future. Yeah. Got to do both. Yeah, I'd say your Q1 <clears throat> results show that, right? Because you're making investments and you're, you're still hitting amazing yeah. growth rates. So one last question. So I'm going to go back X years and, yeah. and you're that kid in Banff who's skiing. And you've got your night job and you're going to give that person you advice today. You're going to go back. What, would you, what advice would you give yourself? Go back, you know, X years. Well, I... Um, my my son is actually working in an early stage company, and um, and I I think you know S Scott, as we were talking about, the hardest part of giving advice uh, to some of these young folks is that it's really the future is so damn unpredictable right now. Um, the only advice I'd give is, you know, invest in things that you're excited about. Um, be have a learning orientation, uh, meaning that it's important at this point in your career to find yourself in places where you're going to be able to challenge yourself and learn as quickly as possible. And then work with people that you think are amazing and culture counts. And you know, earlier in your career, unless you're doing your own company getting organized with people that you respect, that you like, that are going to invest in you and give you the kind of support you need is everywhere you should go. And, uh, you know, I actually believe that 
this is um, right now the best industry in the world for a young person. You know, there's so much that's going to happen with technology. Uh, I think there is a huge opportunity going forward in turning this into a professional investment class. Uh, there's so much new technology coming in. This is uh, this is a great place to be. I, I agree. Well, I want to thank GPG Advisors for sponsoring this. And Bob, I wanted to thank you for the time. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Hope our paths cross again. And I'm sure you. they will, Scott. I'm, we're planning on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thanks a lot.